Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is Philip Terzian, Literary Editor of the Weekly Standard, with my weekly podcast about this week's books and arts section. And this week we're looking at the June 23rd issue of the Weekly Standard. And our lead book review this week is a book that has gotten some attention um, by a former New York Times, uh, well, I, I think he's former, anyway, a sometime New York Times political reporter named Todd Purdom, uh, which is entitled an, I- an Idea Whose Time Has Come, Two Presidents, Two Parties, and the Battle for the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And to review this, I asked my friend Gerard Alexander, who is, uh, teaches politics at the University of Virginia, and is at the moment writing a book on the vexed subject of race and politics, specifically conservative politics. And what's interesting about the Purdom book, uh, and of course like most books by journalists, especially New York Times journalists, it's it was written, I think, with a certain eye to the contemporary scene. And the point that uh, Purdom makes is that in the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Bill, um, there was a, uh, a Republican congressman from Ohio named William McCulloch, who was in a in an arcane way in the way that Congress works, was very decisive in in arriving, helping to arrive at compromises, which made the bill passable in the House and Senate. And I think Purdom's message, which is probably written in neo-lights throughout the book, although I have not read it myself, is that, gosh, isn't it nice that there was once a time when uh, there were Republican congressmen from Ohio who were instrumental in forging political compromises which led to the passage of civil rights acts, to which uh, I would respond and our reviewer responds that, wait a minute, um, the fact is that the resistance to the Civil Rights and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was not among Republicans, but was in fact among Democrats, that the primary opposition in the Senate certainly came from Southern Democratic senators, and the same in the House. Now, the fact is that the Civil Rights Bill had been introduced by President Kennedy, and uh, Kennedy's assassination and the accession of Lyndon Johnson to the presidency changed the political landscape. And this was all simultaneous with the gathering civil rights movement of the era. And I tend to think, and I think um, uh, uh, even if Todd Purdom isn't willing to say it for the sake of the drama in his book, the uh, passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was a lot easier than we think in retrospect. I think by then the uh, public opinion had shifted dramatically on the question of desegregation and civil rights legislation. Um, the Republicans, by and large, except for the libertarian wing, then headed by Barry Goldwater, were very much on board. The real problem were the were the um, Southern Democrats, um, who even at that point, however, realized that um, their day was probably passing and could could mount at best a rear guard action against the bill. Um, uh, led by people like uh, Robert, the late Robert Byrd of West Virginia, later the Senate minority leader, and um, so the 
the the intervention of Congressman McCulloch, while it it's, makes for an interesting point, probably was not as decisive as all that. The important point, though, that the reviewer, um, Jared Alexander, makes is that the passage of these two bills was probably the last time that civil rights as a political and legislative measure could be discussed in a dispassionate way. In other words, principle could be debated rather than impugning the motives of the people um, expressing their opinions, which has been the, unfortunately, has been, at least as far as the Democrats are concerned, has been their default position that uh, any any view you hold on um, such vexed questions as affirmative action and uh, hiring quotas, uh, racial quotas, and that sort of thing, must be based on your racial opinions and not on on principle. And that is unfortunate. And um, as Alexander says, and I'll quote here, some of the same figures and forces that most urgently pushed for basic civil rights went on to ill-serve the national debate by attributing the basis of motives to political adversaries and interpreting every disagreement over means as a difference over ends. In other words, Republicans today will argue that they uh, may oppose affirmative action programs because they want to achieve the same ends, which is to say a racial, a, um, a, um, a racially blind society reflected in its laws, an opportunity for all Americans based um, uh, regardless of race, um, but that the Democrats are, are uh, it's now reflexive among Democrats simply to say that um, the reason Republicans may feel one way or another about such matters is that they they don't they favor inequality. They don't want black people to have opportunities in America, which of course is both historically wrong and just plain incorrect. And one might say politically outrageous, but in any, in any event, it 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 makes the uh, uh, it makes it worthwhile to revisit uh, the origins of this uh, debate and and. Gerard Alexander's piece is an excellent overview of this book and and really gives us a, a much better perspective on where it has gone since the half century, since the Civil Rights Act, and where it is likely to go. That is followed by a review by Kevin Kosar of a uh, new book um, by an uh, Italian author called The Metamorphoses of Fat, A History of Obesity. And this is a, a kind of a, if I may say, a, a fun, not necessarily weighty, as it were, discussion of the subject, which really goes into the, um, of course, we live in a world of, of uh, diets and, and um, imagery and thin fascism and that sort of thing. But, but cultural attitudes towards uh, the appearance of one's body and the amount of weight one carried on one's frame have evolved over time. Um, and uh, it, it has been observed even in our own society that a century and plus ago, the, the uh, thin were, uh, I mean, the, the poor were thin and the rich were fat, and now it's the other way around. 
Um, but the book um, goes into some detail about that. G- given its origins, it's a little more concentrated on the European perspective, um, as it's reflected not only in uh, literature and art, but also in in um, in, in social habits. And our reviewer, Kevin Kosar, goes in a little bit into how this has uh, manifested itself in our own time. Uh, it's a very uh, delightful and informative piece, which is followed by a, a rather more serious examination by Stephen Schwartz, a frequent contributor to our magazine, of a book entitled The Spanish Civil War by Stanley Payne. Um, Stanley Payne, this is actually a... a uh, a updated uh, revision of a book that Payne originally wrote some years ago. Stanley Payne, who's an American academic, is probably the leading academic authority, certainly in the English-speaking world, on the Spanish Civil War, really on the history of modern Spain. And it's a good, interesting, uh, very even-handed discussion of how the Spanish, well, how Spain essentially broke down in the 20th century, how the monarchy was uh, supplanted by uh, a republic, how the republic was torn by the same kind of centrifugal social forces that were at play in neighboring France, for example, but which in Spain were far more serious because Spain was a lot poorer and its empire was uh, fast, swiftly diminishing. And there were a lot of, um, there were serious undercurrents of discontent and mutual antagonism in Spain, which which broke out in the 1930s in violent fashion, where you had anarchists assassinating priests, and uh, the Catholic Church ranged on one side, and the army standing more or less with them against the Republicans, and so forth and so on. And uh, as all through that period, of course, the the attitude of the Spanish army uh, was always a question mark, and it it became clear, of course, by the middle of the decade that the army ultimately would would side against the the uh, republic as it did. And Payne is very interesting in his description of two things. One is how Francisco Franco, who was one general among many. Uh, ultimately emerged as uh, first among equals, and of course, ultimately as the as the leader of Spain after the after the Civil War ended in 1939. Uh, but also the uh, extraordinarily complex um, differences and divisions within divisions on both sides, uh, and particularly on the left. I mean, we now tend to think of the Spanish Republicans as these heroic people fighting for democracy against um, uh, the nationalists who were, of course, aided by uh, uh, fascist Italy and Nazi Germany. It's far more complicated than that. The Republican side, of course, was uh, they, were, they were killing each other as relentlessly as, as they were killing the nationalists. And, of course, the Soviet influence on the Republicans was ultimately became paramount. And as is often the case, they were far more interested in in liquidating their uh, not quite uh, radical enough colleagues as their their common enemy, um, and similarly the the right or the nationalists were similarly divided among uh, incipient fascists, among monarchists, uh, among just conservative uh, uh, Catholic Spaniards or Spanish Catholics. 
um, a real um, a real complicated situation made very clear by Payne's scholarship, and which I think Stephen Schwartz explains in very lucid and helpful and interesting ways. Um, obviously, the Spanish Civil War is one of those incidents in history that we're going to be debating about indefinitely, and this is one way of um, uh, beginning to understand what the debate is all about. This is followed by a, a delightful essay by Paula Dietz, who is the editor of the Hudson Review in New York. Uh, Paula Dietz, um, hitherto uh, has written, uh, before assuming the editorship of Hudson Review, largely wrote, wrote about architecture, and she writes about architecture for us. Uh, in fact, about three um, major public complexes in Asia, which um, at, uh, were, in fact, designed by, uh, well, one Frenchman, one American, and one Englishman. Uh, the National Assembly building in the capital city of Bangladesh, Dhaka, which was designed by the American modernist Louis Kahn. Uh, the Viceroy's House and other buildings in the Indian capital at New Delhi, which were designed by the uh, during the British Raj, which uh, actually very late in the British Raj, which were designed by the uh, English architects Sir Edmund Lutyens, and and the um, Assembly Palace of um, the uh, Chandigarh region in India, which was designed by the famous French modernist Le Corbusier. Paul Dietz um, gives a wonderful description of each building, the history of each building, how it came to be, uh, how it how it works or doesn't work in the exotic settings where it finds itself, how these European sensibilities have been adapted to the Asian setting where they find themselves. And I, I had fortunately had enough room to furnish three very nice color illustrations which give you a sense of how these buildings work or don't work, as, you're, as, as you may think, uh, in their settings. Uh, it's a, a, an inter a fascinating piece and actually, um, uh, at least in my case, made me want to see at least one or two of these specimens on my, on my bucket list. John Podhoritz's uh, film review this week is of the new Tom Cruise uh, movie, Edge of Tomorrow, which um, John doesn't go into too much detail about the movie itself except to emphasize uh, kind of an interesting uh, ancillary fact about it, which is that uh, it's a big, old-fashioned Tom Cruise blockbuster and it hasn't done very well at the box office. And uh, it's an illustration of a, of a long-standing truth about the movies, which we often forget, which is that um, the biggest stars uh, actually do, in the fullness of time, tend to fade. And uh, Will Smith is uh, not what he used to be. Johnny Depp is not what he used to be. Adam Sandler is not what he used to be. Uh, they... they I wouldn't say they've become box office poison in the old-fashioned phrase, but um, they don't sell a movie, um, uh, automatically sell a movie anymore. And Tom Cruise, um, uh, for good or ill, has uh, fallen now into the same category. It's been a kind of long, slow slide for Cruise, um, who's been having troubles at the box office for some years now. But this is a 
this was a uh, this was a one studio's investment in the in the Tom Cruise myth, and it seems not to have paid off. So as always, John makes it very interesting and very entertaining. And on that note, I hope this podcast has been equally interesting and entertaining. I sincerely hope so. I hope you'll you'll take the time to read the section. I think it's um, I think it's a, a good one, but of course I always say that. In any case, we will be um, uh, the Weekly Standard will not publish uh, during the week after this. So uh, this will give you two weeks or so anyway to to catch up on the books and arts section, and I will then see you again in two weeks from now. Thanks very much.